So I greet everyone tonight here in Jesus' name, and <clears throat> it is good to be here with you all. And I'm so thankful for everything God's doing for us and how he keeps on blessing us. Uh, I did talk to Brother Joel in Poland here recently, and you know his church has been doing quite a bit over there to help the different refugees and things that are coming from Poland. And I've talked to Brother Gabriel, too, who's there also near the, Pol the border with Ukraine and Poland. And there's just a whole lot going on over there. Let's just make sure we do keep them in our prayers as we think of them. And, you know, they've been facing the same issues we have. Uh, they came from the same places that we have. And so on top of dealing with all that, they have a war on their borders and a million refugees in their country. And uh, that's been a challenge, certainly. So I know they would appreciate your prayers. They're two really good brothers, if you get a chance to, to meet them and know them. And just, uh, I'm so thankful for the ability that God has given us to have fellowship with different ones, just not even here, but around the world. And I thank God for that. And there are many people who love the Lord, and they're taking the same path we are. They're seeking to put Jesus first. They're taking steps down that road, and we're looking at the gospel. We're looking at the truth of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, something that truly has been long forgotten in many of the places that we've come from. But as we look at the message here again tonight, I'm just going to pick up from where I left off last time I was preaching. And the title of my message has been The Footprints of Jesus. And in our last message, we started looking at the trial of Jesus and just focusing on the the character of the men who murdered Jesus. We looked at their character, their methods, their tactics. But tonight I want to go back through those verses and I want to focus first on the disciples of Jesus, especially Peter, and then we'll maybe do the second half looking at Pontius Pilate and his interactions with Jesus. And So with that in mind, I'll pick up here in Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> And we'll start uh, reading here again, uh, leading up to the arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane. And Matthew 26, and I'll just start reading here at verse 47. It says, Lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed them gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they, and they laid their hands on Jesus, and they took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Now, the book of John tells us that was the Apostle Peter. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword unto his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? And thus it must be. In that same hour said Jesus to the multitude, Are you come out against me as a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done 
that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Amen. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come into this part of the service, Lord, we ask your blessings upon it, God. Lord, that you just be here and help me as I speak the things you put on my heart, Lord. And Lord, just let it all be said in a good way, Father, Lord, that will be helpful, Father, to the hearers, Lord, whether here, whether around the world, Lord, and especially around the world, Father, as this sermon would go to that place. Now, God, you just have your perfect way in everything I pray, and let it be in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, these verses here that we've read tonight starts out, it's very dramatic, isn't it? And if we try to picture ourselves there that evening as one of Jesus' disciples, we can maybe even sense in ourselves a, a little bit of that drama. You know, on a very personal level, these men have become very dear friends to Jesus. They love Jesus as a close friend. These men, they've been with him for years. They've shared his trials. They've shared the journey together. A lot of long miles on the road, a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, a lot of hard work. You know, and when uh, people go through those things together, it builds a, a relationship, doesn't it? And these were those men. And they, they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah. And as we read through the Gospels, though, we see that they do have a, maybe a certain idea about how things are supposed to go from this point, right? What's happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane really doesn't match the way they thought this thing was going to go up to this point. Really, they had been expecting Jesus to overthrow the Romans and to set up the heavenly kingdom. And that idea that they had uh, might have even got a little bit involved into this conflict with the sword coming out and so forth with Peter. Because they had been carrying weapons, they had been doing things of this nature. One of the apostles, Simon, a zealot, he was even from a faction that was eager to overthrow the government. And so, no doubt, their expectations have been that at some point, something violent is going to happen and they're going to be involved in, in fighting the government, fighting the authorities. And they have expectations that as a result of helping the Lord even in this way, that they're going to have positions of authority and importance in this kingdom that Jesus was going to set up. Now, in their mind, that really is where things were, were headed. And we can find evidence of that throughout the Gospels, which we won't read a lot of those verses tonight. But even though Jesus had been telling them he was going to die, even though he had been saying the kingdom of God is within you, the apostles were still expecting something very different than what was actually coming. They were looking for a very natural-looking kingdom to be set up. Whereas we know Jesus is actually in the process of setting up a very spiritual kingdom. Amen? And as they came to Jerusalem the week before this arrest, they were really up on a high. The people had been calling Hosanna in the streets. They were calling Jesus the son of David. And it looked like Jesus was winning the crowd over. Jesus, he'd went up to the temple, he told off the religious leaders, he had challenged the leadership of Israel. And in a lot of ways, you could see how maybe from their frame of thinking, it looked like things were really starting to come together. He's, he's, getting, ready, he's getting in their faces. We're right on the edge. We're right on the edge of that kingdom being set up. And the truth is, Jesus was about to set up that kingdom, wasn't he? 
it was just going to take a form that was quite different from what his disciples had in mind. And in different ways, maybe we can relate that to our own selves and maybe even people we have known because in many ways the kingdom of God is in a different shape and a different manner than many people we have known tend to believe that it is. Amen? And as Jesus is here in the garden being arrested, reality starts to hit home with the apostles. And Peter's quick to grab up his sword and start fighting for the kingdom that he's looking for and that he's expecting. You know, Peter, he had a lot of wonderful qualities, right? He had a lot of zeal. He had a lot of confidence. He was a fighter. Those are great qualities for a person to have. You know, we would never look at a person with those qualities and say, that's bad, right? And they're good things for a person to have, especially when they're directed in the right way. When we have zeal, when we have confidence, when we have a, a fighting spirit, those can be a great asset and benefit to us if they're tempered by God. Amen? And we see in Peter his zeal, his confidence, that fighting spirit. But at this time in his life, those parts of his character are not really aligned with the will of God. They're not being directed by the word of God. And as we see Peter in these verses, as we've read, how he's reacting to this situation, there's a little bit of a lesson we could, we could draw for ourselves or for anybody. And it's a lesson maybe about defending the Lord. When we got a lot of zeal, when we got a lot of passion, when we got a lot of fighting spirit, we can be very quick maybe to jump to the defense of a righteous cause. Maybe just like Peter did here. You grab the biggest weapon you got and start hacking away. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We see Peter here doing that. He takes up that weapon and he starts lashing out against the people that are coming against the Lord. And you and I, maybe at times we could be tempted to do something rash, something on the spur of the moment maybe in that way, just instinctually take the biggest thing we got and start fighting to defend the Lord. But we realize we can't defend Jesus just any old way, right? And we see Peter here, he has a good, he's got a good motive in his heart. He wants to defend the Lord. We couldn't say there's a thing wrong with that, could we? But we see he's maybe chosen the wrong weapon to defend him with. Jesus told Peter something really plainly there after he had done that. He said, if you take the sword, you'll perish by the sword. You might say you'll reap what you sow. If we use a weapon of some sort, we should not be surprised if maybe that person we attack responds maybe by even using that same kind of a weapon back against us, right? Peter's lucky <laughs> one of the high priest servants didn't pull out a sword and whack his ear off, right? So I definitely want to be careful about the weapons that I use to defend the Lord. I don't want to defend the Lord with man's weapons. I don't want to defend the Lord with Satan's weapons either. But I want to defend the Lord with the weapons that God has equipped me with. I want to fight against the enemy with the sword of the Spirit. I want to fight against the enemy with the sword of God's Word. I want to fight against the enemy with the sword of truth. Amen? Those are weapons we can use to defend our Lord and His kingdom. Amen? And sometimes, you know, if we might choose another weapon, things may not necessarily go well for us. Because if you take the sword, you'll perish by the sword. 
It's good to be zealous. It's good to be bold. It's good to fight for what is right. But when we go outside the parameters of God's word to do it, then it can come definitely with a cost. And that's one of the lessons here Jesus is conveying to Peter. We can't show the world the witness of Jesus with violence or with harshness. We can't use wickedness to bring about good. We can't show the world the witness of Jesus by ranting and raving like a deranged lunatic, right? (laughs) We can't show the world the witness of Jesus by going around stabbing people with ungodliness, right? (laughs) If we do, then we might end up just like Peter did here in Gethsemane. Amen? And let's maybe just put Peter into a little bit more of a perspective here. I love Peter. When I get to heaven, I'm going to give him a hug and I'm going to say, thank you, Peter, for all the lessons about you in the Bible. I'm glad, I'm I'm sorry you made those mistakes, but I'm glad you did so that I could learn from them. Amen? Thank God that these things were recorded here. Peter's our precious brother. So, you know, whenever I talk about Peter, I hope you don't think I dig down on Peter. I love Peter, and I am so thankful for Brother Peter. Hallelujah. But just put Peter here in a little bit more perspective. He was too sleepy to be praying with Jesus there in the garden, wasn't he? He was too sleepy to fight the spiritual fight. But he had plenty of energy to start throwing that sword around, didn't he? My. You know, that speaks something to me about Peter at this time in his life. For all his zeal, for all his confidence, for all his fighting spirit, he was really a very immature follower of Jesus. He would not yet learned the right way to defend the Lord and his kingdom. Amen. So I want to be careful in how I fight for the Lord. I want to make sure I'm not just cutting people's ears off, right? Because if the first thing I do is cut somebody's ear off, they're not going to be able to hear a word they, I say, are they? Amen. And I will have defeated Christ's purpose. Hallelujah. Peter learned a lesson from what Jesus said and did. Because what did Jesus do? He picked up that man's ear and he put it back on his head, didn't he? And he healed him. Jesus is not in the business of cutting off ears. Jesus is in the business of opening ears. Jesus is in the business of speaking the truth in love. And a man needs an ear to be able to hear that. Hallelujah. And Peter learned that lesson from Jesus. You know, sometimes that's how life is. We learn through experience. We, we learn that cutting off someone's ear is not the best tactic for spreading the gospel. <laughs> and sometimes maybe we learn that through a mistake, right? Like Peter did. But I want to follow, and so I want to follow Christ's example. I want to be one who's trying to heal people's ears, right? And I'll tell you what, there is a whole lot of people who've had their ears cut off by some misguided men who thought they were defending Jesus. And I would love it if Jesus would give me the ability to heal some ears. Praise the Lord. And so that's one thing that I want to point out in these verses about the arrest of Jesus. Uh, Don't cut off people's ears. My, that's a simple lesson, isn't it? (laughs) Hallelujah. Don't cut off people's ears because then they won't be able to hear of the gospel. Amen. And you know, there's more than one way to cut off a person's ear, too. We realize that. And they don't all require a sword. 
some of them just require a really bad attitude. <laughs> Amen. And boy, we've known some bad attitude people, haven't we? Amen. Now, there's another aspect here to what Peter is doing that I also would like to bring out. And this, this really becomes clear when Jesus goes before Pilate. And turn over to John 18 with me. And I, I want to connect this to, to what Peter's been doing here with his sword. John chapter 18. And now Pilate here, he's done asked Jesus, are you a king? And he's asking Jesus if he's trying to overthrow the Roman government and start a new kingdom. And in verse 36, Jesus is given the answer to that. We'll look at this more thoroughly in a minute, but I just want to pull this part out here. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Amen? I think we can just, reading that in our mind, realize how we can, in some ways, connect this back to what was happening as he was arrested in Gethsemane. And there's two phrases there I want to focus on. And the first one, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Amen. That's something so wonderful. So, when, when the Lord showed me these things, and it's been years ago now, I started to see these things. It, it, it caused me to look at the world and society and my walk with the Lord in, in a very different way than I had before. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. The kingdom that Jesus is ruling over, it's not an earthly, natural kingdom. right? It's not a state or a kingdom that looks like anything we would find in the world. It doesn't have a government like the kingdoms of the world. It doesn't have borders that you could draw on a map. It doesn't have an army with tanks and palms and guns, right? It doesn't have a tax policy. It doesn't have a foreign policy, right? right. Amen, we were talking earlier. It doesn't have an energy policy. Too bad, right? <laughs> but anyways, it doesn't have any of those things. The kingdom of Jesus uh, doesn't have those things. That kingdom that Jesus is talking about, his kingdom is not of this world. And to some degree you could say his kingdom is not even directly concerned with those things. We could say in an indirect way it is. But if we think back no, you know, to the days of the Romans, that was a very evil day. We talk about how evil the world is today, and the world sure is evil today. We could all agree to that, I'm sure. But it's very accurate to say that the world was just as evil, maybe and probably even more evil, in the days of Jesus than it is today. You know, and a lot of times we'll hear t people talk about the good old days and how things were back a hundred years ago, back when Christianity really was much more dominant through large parts of the world. And things have sure slipped a whole long way from those good old days to today. Amen? If you're like me, you don't even remember the good old days because we weren't around back then. <laughs> I've, uh, I've lived in an evil world my whole life, I guess, in that way. You know, uh, it, it, it's always been this way. Amen? Things have certainly gotten worse, though, from what we can see and read in history over the past century or so. And things have sure slipped a long way. But as bad as things are today in that way, it's still not as bad as it was in the days of Jesus. What we're living through today is not the most evil period in the history of the world. And, you know, people who really hit that really hard are people who maybe haven't spent a whole time reading history. <laughs> 
Because we know in the days of Jesus, there was not a single place in this whole world that had righteous leaders or government. You know that? Not one. Not one spot in the whole world had righteous leaders in the days of Jesus. But you know, in the world we live in today, you can still find some places that have some decent Christian leaders around. Amen? In the days of Jesus, homosexuality was legal. And even worse, child molestation was totally legal in those days too. Amen. You hear people talk rumors about some of the leaders in our nation are involved in pedophilia, and I don't doubt that some of that's true. Well, you know, in the days of Jesus, it was very common for the wealthy and the elite men to keep young children around them, if you know what I mean. And today, you and I have rights. We've got a freedom, a religious freedom, a freedom of thought in our country, and it also is in a lot of other countries. But none of those things existed in Jesus' day. It was worse in very many different ways in the days of Jesus. The world we live in today, it has a lot of evil. It has a lot of things wrong, and it just seems to be getting worse. But don't be fooled into thinking that it's any worse today than it was in the days of Jesus. We know there are pagan influences in the government of the world today, but you know, in Jesus' day, there were only pagan influences in the government. Amen. Amen? You know that? And in, when you think about it in that way, there was no redeeming qualities, right, in the government. Amen? I know we've talked about that a little bit, right? And so we just realize that when you see the evil that's in the world today, it's certainly worse than it's been in the past few generations. And it seems to be trending downhill. My. But it's still not as bad as it was in the days of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus walked the earth in a more evil day than we live in. And if you don't believe me, well, all you got to do is open up your history books and read what life was like in the Greek and the Roman world in the century leading up to the birth of Christ. And that's important to remember because that can bring a lot of things into perspective when we read the Bible. Jesus wasn't living in some golden age when all of these things happened. And things have been downhill since then. No, no. It was, it was uh, just about as evil as it gets in the day that Jesus was living. Amen. And we see how Jesus lived in that evil world. And if we look at the example of Jesus and the life of Jesus and how he lived in that evil world, it bears witness to us to how we can respond and how we can live in an evil world and an evil society around us. Amen? And kind of going back here to what we were looking at, if, if we look at Jesus, if we look at his life, if we look maybe at what he said to Peter about not taking up the sword, if we look at what he said to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, if we look at how he answered his disciples' questions about taxes and obeying the law and different things, we can see very clearly how Jesus responded and reacted to the society, the government, the world around him. And you could sum it all up right in what Jesus says here to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. You know, Jesus, in one sense, is not too concerned with earthly governments. He had another kingdom which transcended all of the kingdoms of the earth. His disciples wanted him to overthrow the government and set up that earthly kingdom. His followers want him to get involved in that arena of things. They even tried one time, you remember, to take him and make him king by force. Remember that? After he fed the, the multitude. They wanted to almost force him into this militant, <laughs> kingly role. 
Some of them even wanted to raise up and fight and overthrow the government. But look here at the next thing Jesus says in that verse 36. The second thing I want to emphasize is, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Amen. You see how Peter rose up to fight? He went to battle. What was he fighting for, as you think about it? Is Jesus making it pretty clear there was no fighting for him in that? What Jesus says there in verse 36, it does on one hand let us know there is a kingdom worth fighting for. Amen? That's implied in what he says. He does have a kingdom that he wants his servants to rise up and fight for. But it's not a kingdom that can be won with natural means of fighting. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom that's ruling over land and properties and taxes and political power and political policy. But the kingdom of God is ruling over the hearts of men. The kingdom of God is made up of people. It's not made up of land or property in that way. The kingdom of God is not even ultimately dependent on any of those things. The kingdom of God is made up of the souls of men. And Jesus, he didn't come into the world to conquer provinces and territories. Jesus came into the world to conquer the hearts of men. Amen. And women. And when we fight for the kingdom of God, we're fighting for the hearts and the souls of men and women. And you know, that is something that is worth fighting for. Hallelujah. But that's not something you can do with a sword or a spear but it is something you can do with the words of the gospel. It's something you can do when you live in a country ruled by evil Romans, right? It's something you can do even in a country ran by pagans, which we see we're quickly heading there. Amen. It's something you can do in a country where homosexuality is rampant. It's something you can do in a Roman empire. It's something you can do in America. Amen. It's something you can do in a China. You know, if the political atmosphere around us is friendly towards Christ, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But if the political atmosphere around us is satanic and devilish, the kingdom of heaven goes on just the same. Amen. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Amen. And it does not require even the things of this world. Whether the conditions around us are good or whether they are bad, the kingdom of God is not hindered. And we can use the very words of Jesus. If his kingdom were of this world, we would rise and fight. But his kingdom is not from hence. Amen? I don't need an arsenal in my closet <laughs> of 500 guns and bombs and everything else. I don't need those things. I don't have to need those things because I'm not going to have to fight, I don't believe, for kingdom of this world. Amen. I know lots of people that have enough firepower for a small army. Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't feel like that's something I need. And there's nothing wrong if people want to have that. But the Lord has not asked us to stockpile weaponry to fight for him in some kingdom of this world. Amen. That's what I believe. Praise the Lord. And if we take all this back to Peter in Gethsemane, you know, he thought he was fighting for the Lord, but really he was fighting for a kingdom of this world. 
And he didn't have a proper vision in his heart of what the kingdom of God was. And that led him to fight for the wrong things and in a wrong way. And that's a seductive trap that can be easy to fall into. Peter and the other apostles, really, they were looking for Jesus to set up the millennial kingdom. And you know, truly, there will come a day when Jesus will set up a righteous government that will rule over this whole world. That is coming, and I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. But that was not the kind of kingdom Jesus had came to set up in the days of Peter, was it? And that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was trying to set up there in Gethsemane when he was being arrested. And it's still not the kind of kingdom he's trying to set up today. And you and I were capable of falling into the same mistake that these disciples here of Jesus made in the Gospels. And in fact, you know, I believe there are a lot of people we have known that are guilty of that exact same mistake. They don't have really a proper understanding or a true vision of what the kingdom of God is today. Like Peter, James, John, they got so focused on the millennium and millennial kingdom that they have utterly neglected the kingdom that is here today. They're so desirous and so focused on the kingdom to come that their efforts have become completely misdirected. What they're fighting for has become completely misdirected. Their intentions, their goals, their desires are all aimed in the wrong way. Amen. And I'll tell you something too, and I know you all know this too, but really, the governments of the world, they get better, they get worse, but ultimately nothing's all ever going to really fix them. Even Jesus is not going to fix the governments of the world. His plan's to burn them all down and start over. <laughs> Amen. He's going he's to take care of that one of these days. Amen. He's coming back to do that. And that is where the systems of this world are headed. And until he comes back, there's always going to be something wrong in this world and with its government and with its society. Amen. And you know, the place I came from, somehow, it's amazing. Somehow they thought tax policy had something to do with the kingdom of heaven. Somehow they thought immigration policy had something to do with the kingdom of heaven. Somehow they thought foreign policy had something to do with the kingdom of heaven. All of these sorts of things they thought had something to do with the gospel. Amen. And there were always, especially some in leadership, out fighting for the causes of this world in that way. And quite a few, quite a many few, stockpiling small arsenals to literally equip small armies of people. That was going on. Amen? And you know what's amazing? They had all the energy to do that. They had all the energy to fight for that kingdom and prepare to defend that kingdom. But they had no energy to share the gospel. They had no energy to fight for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And I'll be honest, I can count on one hand the number of times that I heard the gospel preached in the past 20 years that I was in that mess. And that counts the times I preached it. <laughs> They're fighting for the wrong thing. They're focused on the kingdoms of this earth rather than the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that's here today. And that does not mean that we don't have anything to say about what's going on around us because Jesus and the apostles sure had lots to say about it, didn't they? Amen. But it does mean that we don't let those things sidetrack us away from the gospel. 
Amen. So we're here today to tell people the good news. We're here to tell them there is a way of escape. We're here to tell them their sins are forgiven and their souls are saved if they believe on Christ. We're not fighting for the kingdoms of this world, but we're telling them about a better kingdom. A kingdom they can become part of today. A kingdom that will last forever and that everyone who lives in that kingdom will last forever too. Hallelujah. You know, Peter and the disciples, they hadn't learned that lesson yet as they're here in these verses that we've read through, but they're learning it as Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, his servants would rise and fight. You know, as for me, there's only really one kingdom I'm interested in fighting for, and it's not a kingdom of this world. I believe we probably all feel the same way about that. And if nothing else, then you certainly know how I feel about it. Praise the Lord. And if you had a chance to know me very well over the years, you'll know that my mind changed a lot on these things over the years. And it's entirely to do with verses like this I've, I've read in the Bible. You know, I've met, I've met Todd Young several times. I've met Mitch McConnell. I've met other congressmen. I've, been in the, I've met the mayor. I've met the governor. I've been in the same room as Donald Trump. I've been in the same room as Obama. I haven't had an opportunity this past week to go to a conference with George Bush. My job over the years has allowed me to be around a lot of rich and powerful men. And none of that makes me anything special at all. But quite some time ago, I realized there is no fixing this mess. <laughs> and the men I once looked at as my political heroes, I found out a lot of them were just political animals. <laughs> And the best thing I can do is point people to Jesus. And if the majority of the people around us are living for Jesus, you know, this is going to be a pretty good place to live in, won't it? Amen. And if not, the kingdom of God goes on. Praise the Lord. The kingdom I am fighting for is not of this world. Amen. So maybe let me put a period on that thought, and let's go over and look at another aspect of what's happened here with Jesus and the disciples, back in Matthew 26. And you don't have to turn there, I'll just maybe summarize that verse, but Matthew 26 and verse 56, we see that when Jesus was arrested, it says that all of the disciples fled. They abandoned him, and they all ran away. All of Jesus' friends, the men he had counted on, in his moment of greatest need, they totally abandoned him. And we can imagine just how that made Jesus feel. As he watched his friends all desert him, while he's turned over into the hands of evil men, maybe some of you know what that feels like, to have your friends and the people you counted on, to have them turn their backs on you and walk away in your moment of greatest need. Maybe it's something we can all relate to. Maybe just take a second there and realize Jesus knows exactly how that feels. There in verse 56, he knows exactly what it feels like to have all of your friends turn their backs on you. And you know, when you talk to Jesus, when you pray to him, you're talking to someone who knows what that feels like. When you're talking to him, you know he knows what it feels like to have all your friends turn away. Amen. And as we read through the story of Jesus' trial, it even gets worse. If you turn over to Luke chapter 22, we'll just read a few verses there, and we'll see maybe the, 
the the height, the height of his desertion, the height of his friends turning away from him there. Luke 22 and verse 54. Then took they him and led him and brought him to the high priest's house and Peter followed afar off. So Peter is trailing Jesus from a distance to see what will happen. And you know, if we went to the book of John, we'd see that John was also following along. So two of Jesus' disciples are, are getting to see what's going on. And in verse 55, we start to see what Peter does as he's following. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and they were sat down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, and earnestly looked upon him, checking out his facial features. Maybe she's rubbing her chin. Something about that man. And she said, This man also was with him. I knew I'd seen you before. And Peter, he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou also, thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And if we went to uh, one of the other gospels, it says he cursed and swore and said, I don't know him. He even cursed about it. Verse 59, And about the space of one hour after another, confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he spake, the cock crew. Verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Jesus was there to hear Peter say all of that. Jesus was right in earshot as his dearest friends. I don't know him. I don't know nothing about him. Never seen him before in my life. Jesus is right there in earshot to see his dearest friend deny that he even knows him. Totally turn his back on him. My. And when, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out, and he wept bitterly, bitterly. My. Jesus not only experienced his friends running away from him, he even witnessed Peter right here openly denying him. He's not my friend. I don't know him. I don't have anything to do with him. And I can't know exactly what that feels like to have friends and people we love totally Protect they don't even know us anymore. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. My. And as I look at this, I see another lesson here. Because we can see exactly how Jesus reacted to all of his friends abandoning him. What did he do? He loved them anyways. He loved them anyways. My. He didn't hold it against them. He understood that they were afraid of these big religious leaders. And what was going on, what was happening to Jesus, was taking a toll on his friends. They were reeling. They were confused. Their faith even was wavering. And it's understandable that they would react the way that they did. And Jesus loved them anyways.
In fact, as Peter is denying him, Jesus is praying for him. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, Peter, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. There's one more verse I'd like to read, John 16 and 32. John 16 and 32. This is something Jesus had told the disciples before he was arrested. It's maybe a little special verse to me. It speaks to me. John 16 and 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet, I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. Amen. Hallelujah. My title tonight, it is still Footprints of Jesus, but I have put a subtitle on it. My subtitle is, I am not alone. Amen. Jesus' friends abandoned him. Jesus' loved ones denounced him. To the average person, it looked like Jesus was all alone. But you know what? He was not alone, was he? And he wanted his disciples to know it. You know, the whole world can seem to turn against you. Everyone you know can abandon you. And some people might even say that's evidence that God is against you. But when you know that you are on the right side, when you know that you are on God's side, you're no more alone than Jesus was. Amen? The Father was with him. And God is with us today. Praise the Lord. The darkest hour comes just before the dawn. And we are witnesses to what God has done for us just these past months. Amen. He's multiplied more friends than we've had in a long time. Praise the Lord. He's brought us into community with other ministers, other groups, people who are standing with Jesus just like we are. People who found the same problems and the same issues that we did, just like we did. And a lot of them have endured the exact same ridicule and abuse from their religious leaders like we have. But the truth is worth it. Because the truth will set you free. You know, and oftentimes you don't even realize you are in bondage until the truth comes along. Amen? But thank God, He showed us the truth of these things. Praise the Lord. Let me go back to John chapter 18. And I'll pick up at verse 37. John 18 and 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? Let me back up here. I think I might have skipped a verse. Yeah, I did. Amen. But I'll just I'll pick up at 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Amen? You know, if we just tell the truth, that's good enough. And everyone that is of the truth, or we might say everyone who values the truth, they'll hear the truth and they'll respond to it. And people who don't value the truth will reject it. And when you tell the truth, when you share the truth, don't be surprised to find if people start abusing you just like they abused Jesus. 
You know, Jesus is the way to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. And believing on him, repenting, being baptized, filled with the Spirit, living a fruitful life, that's enough. That's enough to go in the rapture. That's enough for a reward in heaven. And that is the truth. But there's a whole lot of people who hate and will destroy you for saying what I just said. Jesus did not descend from heaven with a shout in 1963. Amen. That never happened. Amen. That is not the truth. And everything that is built on that lie has to be purged. Right. Amen. But you know, there's people that hate that, and they'll destroy you for saying that out loud. But I'll say it again because it's the truth. Jesus did not descend from heaven with a shout in 1963. That never happened. And the people who told us that happened deceived us. So my question is, will you hear the truth? You know, this message will go far and wide with time, so I ask you, will you hear the truth? Amen. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I unto the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Amen. I could finish my message right there tonight, but i got a whole other one I'm going to preach now. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Go ahead if you want. No, I'm halfway through. <clears throat> but that would have been a great stopping point. Anyway, I want to look at Pilate a little bit here before I close, and I'll, I'll just look at him towards the end. And Pilate's the last character I do want to look at tonight, and Pilate is an altogether different character than anyone else we've looked at up until this point. Pilate is the most conflicted man in this whole story. He's someone you can almost feel sorry for. Almost. Almost. He's put into a position he does not want to be in. You know, and I think that's something a lot of us can relate to. Oftentimes we're put in a situation where we just don't want to deal with it, right? We just want the problem to go away. Just go away, problem. Let someone else deal with it. Let me go about my business. I want to close my eyes. I want to ignore the problem. And you know, that's very much Pilate's situation here. These religious leaders have embarked on an evil plot to destroy an innocent man. And like it or not, Pilate is being dragged right into the middle of it. And as we read about Pilate, we see that he knows. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows. And he even has a desire to do the right thing and to set Jesus free. But he's under siege. He's under and being pressured. He's faced with a dilemma. And like so many people, when they're faced with a difficult decision to make, Pilate wants to make no decision at all. <laughs> My, you know, I've been there, done that. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us could relate to that. He does not want to deal with what is happening. He just wants it all to go away. You could say Pilate wants to sit on the fence and let someone else deal with this issue. So in Pilate's mind, it, it's okay for these ev evil religious leaders to destroy an innocent man, so long as he's not forced to take a position on the subject. 
But as hard as he tries, as much as he tries to make the problem go away, it's not going to go away. No. Some problems don't go away. And whether he wants to or not, he is going to be forced to make a decision. And when we go back to verse uh, 39 of John 18, or maybe it's 29, notice there how Pilate is seeking to avoid getting into this situation. Let's just read 29 of chapter 18. Pilate then went unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. That's not really an answer. <laughs> then Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. Here is Pilate's first attempt to avoid making a decision. As we go through here, I'm just going to count how many times Pilate tries to avoid making a decision. This is number one. The Jews therefore said unto him, It's not lawful for us to put any man to death. First he says, It's your problem. Go deal with it. The Jews therefore said unto him, It's not lawful for us to put any man to death. That saying that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall, and he called Jesus, and he said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? So as Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus, he goes straight to the point. There's no beating around the bush here. Caesar is king of Israel. And if Jesus is trying to make himself king, well, it, it's over right there, right? He's in rebellion against the government. And if he's a rebel, well, it's going to be the death penalty right out the gate. And so Jesus answers him very, very pointedly, very to the point. And at first he says, Jesus answered him saying, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? So Jesus comes back to Pilate with a very good question. Are you going to judge this matter based on what you heard these people say? Or are you, are you going to check into this thing yourself? Did you get this on hearsay, Pilate? Just what these people said? Or are you really going to look and see if you're doing the right thing? Are you going to look for yourself? Are you going to convict me on the words of other men who hate me? Or are you really going to see if you can find out what the truth is? And you know, it's a good question that Jesus asked here. Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Is this coming from you, Pilate, or did others tell it to thee of me? It's a good question because if, if, if you convict someone on accusations without any proof, Pilate knows that's wrong, amen? And we know it's wrong to make a decision on a subject when we haven't even looked into it. You know, the Bible says that uh, a man who makes a decision on a matter before he's looked into it is a fool, amen? And to him it's a folly, it's even a sin, amen? And look at how Pilate responds. Verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So just catch there carefully how Jesus has answered Pilate. He's making it clear he's not trying to overthrow the government. He's not trying to overthrow the governments of the world today either. His kingdom is not one that can be established or expanded that way, and he's making that abundantly clear to Pilate. My kingdom is not from 
hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said unto him, What is truth? What is truth? You know, that, that statement right there, that question, it reveals a whole lot about Pilate. Uh, a whole lot about the way even that he's come to think about the world. Pilate's a cynical man. What is truth? He saw and heard so many things in life. He's no doubt been exposed to many philosophers, many religious men. He's, a, he's at a high, very high rank in the Roman government. He has been around. He's been around the block. He's seen a lot of things. He's known a lot of people. And his job, his career has no doubt exposed him to all kinds of suffering, all kinds of pain. No doubt he's watched mass executions. He's watched blood flow all the day long. Pilate has seen a lot of things in life. He's heard a lot of people, no doubt, with a whole lot of ideas. And he is at a point in his life where the word truth causes him to end a conversation immediately. <laughs> you know, in the world today, we talk about triggers, don't we? I wonder if the word truth was a trigger for Pilate. I don't know. He had heard so much about truth, he almost had an immediate reaction to drop that subject. What is truth? What is truth? How dare you even talk to me about truth? Why do you even bring that up? Truth, truth, truth. On one hand, maybe we can pick up in the tone of his statement, what is truth? That truth is a topic that Pilate is exhausted with. One that maybe, no doubt, has spent a whole lot of time thinking about even. Because, you know, you don't ask the question, what is truth? Unless you're someone who spent some time trying to define what truth is. You know that? You know, when you hear men scream at you, telling you all the time they have the truth. But experience proves over and over that what they call the truth was actually just lies. You know, you can start to get a little jaded. I sense here Pilate might be a little jaded. And just why, I don't know. You know, all we can do is speculate why truth, why Pilate would say what is the truth. But clearly something has happened in Pilate's life leading up to this moment to cause him to look at this and say, what is truth? You know, he don't even, he don't even care almost. He just don't, wants it to go away. Amen. You know, when you hear that, it does something. So somewhere along the way, Pilate had decided there wasn't really any way to define truth. That really was his belief, and that is embedded right there in his question. Truth is undefinable, Jesus. I don't even need to hear the rest of what you have to say. But you know, I wish Pilate had stopped there and maybe instead asked Jesus the question, what is truth? What is the truth, Jesus? Because you know, the truth was standing right there in front of him. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. All the truth you need, all the truth you ever need to know or understand or accept, it's wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did to save you. Amen? The Bible 
This book, it points to Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. He's the author and he's the finisher. He's the beginning and the end. He's the middle of the story too. And everything in this book is to bear witness of him. The Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all here to point us to him. He is the be-all, end-all. Amen? And if in the end we lose sight of Jesus, as has happened in the places that we've come from, all the rest is worthless. Amen? All the rest becomes worthless because the purpose of it all is to put us back into relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen? He is redemption manifest. Amen. Jesus Christ is the truth. I sure wish Pilate had asked Jesus the question so that he could have told him, Amen? I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. And anyone else who tries to cram other things down your throat that doesn't begin and end with Jesus, that's really just a bunch of worthless garbage. And no doubt something along that line's happened to Pilate in his life to cause him to even say a question like that. And people who don't refuse, or rather I should say people who refuse to accept what I've just said about Jesus being the beginning and the end and the whole thing, they're people who aren't a whole letter better off than Pilate. Amen? They're people who don't know what the truth is either. And you know, at least Pilate has the honesty to admit it. At least Pilate has the honesty to say what is truth. Amen? Other people cling on to other things and they claim to have the truth. But Jesus is nowhere present in it. Verse 38, Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault at all. I find in him no fault at all. Now notice here Pilate's second attempt to avoid getting involved in this situation. He went, he questioned him, he humored him. I don't find any fault in him. He's trying again to wiggle out of making a decision. You can turn over to Luke 23 now. We'll, we'll get a few more aspects here. Luke 23 and verse 4. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching through all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. Now verse 8, this is good news for Pilate because Jesus was not from Judea. He was from Galilee. And Pilate sees another way out of having to make a decision here. He knows Jesus is innocent. He wants to let him go. He knows he don't want his hands dirty with this thing. He knows he's being false accused. He's looking for a way out to sit on the fence and not commit. You know, have you ever met anybody like that? They say in their heart, I know this thing is wrong. I know it's wrong. I know this is not right. You know, they might even say it out loud. They might even say, I know this man's innocent. I know the truth. But they won't take the final step. They won't take that truth that they know that they should follow and put it into action. You know, if Jesus was innocent, why didn't Pilate just let him go? If Jesus was innocent, why wasn't Pilate arresting these people who was trying to murder him? 
because of the pressure. Because of the pressure from these religious leaders, Pilate could not bring himself to do what he knew was the right thing. And here he makes his first compromise with evil. And his first compromise with evil happens when he refuses to do the right thing and let Jesus go. It was in his power to let Jesus go. And so here for the third time he refuses to commit to a decision. And this time he thinks he's found the perfect way out. Jesus is from Galilee, let's send him to Herod. He's Herod's problem, not mine. Jesus should answer to Herod. So Pilate sends him to him. Verse 7, And as soon as he knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long time, because he had heard many things of him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him in many words, and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. You know, there's a lot we could say there about Herod and dwell on that. He's another bad actor. He's done killed one prophet, John the Baptist, right? He is a bad guy. But even he won't condemn Jesus. Even the killer of John the Baptist won't condemn Jesus. And what does he do? He sends him back to Pilate. Jesus is the problem that won't go away. (laughs) That is who Jesus is to Pilate. Jesus is the problem that will not go away. And that is the truth for everyone, no matter where you are in the world, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. When we are confronted with Jesus... We have to make a choice. Amen. There's no pushing it off to someone else. We have to decide for ourselves, in our own hearts, do I believe Jesus? Do I believe his words? Or not. And you and I, we've come from places that a whole lot of people do not really believe the words of Jesus. Because Jesus said he was the one and only way, and if you believe on him, that was enough. That was enough to make it to heaven. And so many people we have known do not believe that. They do not believe Jesus is enough. And I'll have to say, beyond everything else, that is the root of my beef with them. Above all else, that is the worst thing that they have done. They have hidden Jesus and obscured him. And for that, that, that is... That makes me angry more than anything else that they have done that. Amen? They do not believe Jesus is enough. Their whole attitude and their whole program really just belittles Jesus and takes away from him. You know, maybe it's the first time someone might hear something like this, but it is the truth. And it don't matter how much you bury your head in the sand, how much you refuse to make a decision, the Jesus problem is not going to go away. When you are part of a system that tells you you need more than Jesus to be saved, you need more than Jesus to go in the rapture, you need more than Jesus to go to heaven, you are in a system that has rejected Jesus because that is what he taught. And that is what his apostles taught. 
And when men reject that, they are just like these religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus that we are reading about right here. And you have to decide, are you going to reject Jesus too? Is Jesus enough for you? Jesus is enough for me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He's all I need. He's all I need. He is enough. Amen. Enough to save me. Enough to cleanse me from sin. Enough to make me holy. Enough to rapture me out of this world. He is the way. He is the life. He is the truth. Hallelujah. And Pilate is not going to get out of making a decision. And neither is anyone who is confronted with Jesus. Praise the Lord. Now look here at verse 12. Verse 12 here. And this is a, this is a filthy verse. <laughs> this might be one of the filthiest verses in the Bible. To me anyway. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before they were at enmity between themselves. <laughs> My, what an awful thing. Pilate and Herod had a bad relationship. Pilate and Herod didn't get along with each other. In fact, Pilate and Herod were enemies. But look at the thing that finally brought them together. Something evil. My, my. Evil people base their friendship on evil commonalities. And you know, Susan of Eden heard what was going on after 15. Thing. What leaders were in their Just and as you turn head and doing. Even if maybe he don't understand the subject matter, he clearly sees something fresh wicked when he heard. You know, in us, me and it advance their cause of evil and who would cause the situation to work out to their advantage. And this is, this is a verse wants to close. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your blessings, Lord, for being here with us today to help us, Father. Lord, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for what you've done in our lives, Lord, and how you've helped us and blessed us in every way. Lord, bless each of my brothers and sisters that's here tonight. Lord, continue to bless us, Father, as you will, Lord, that we might add and grow and benefit your kingdom, Father, Lord, because our soul heart's desire, Lord, is to bring glory to you, to bring glory to your name, Father. Lord, to see souls set free, Lord, the captives to go free, Father. Lord, for people to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord. Lord, and not to have their dependence on men, not to have their dependence on their own works, not to have their dependence on a special revelation or a special knowledge, Father, but Lord, to have their salvation based firmly in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now have your perfect way, I pray, and bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen.